So what we're going to do now is we're going to be embarking on a 12-week journey through the book of Philippians, the magnificent book of Philippians here. And we're going to walk through this incredible God-breathed book here uh, that can impact your spiritual journey in profound ways. And so the blessing of it can be deposited in your life, but you got to be here. So I'm asking you to be here over the next 12 weeks. Uh, and so if you're new to church, if you're new to church, this is going to show you what a Christ follower looks like, what your life would look like. Maybe you're here and you're like, I was born in church. I mean, like I almost hit the pulpit when I was born there. And but maybe you're feeling a little stagnant like we saw some of the stories today. And so, and you're wondering, what would really living for Christ look like? Where should I be? Where should I be in my relationship with God? Hey, show up for the next 12 weeks. Or if you're like, I'm good with God and I, we're good here. I want to know Jesus more. Hey, we're going to talk about that too. So this is a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, unpacking a profound scripture here that is unique and unlike any other New Testament book there. And so I really want you to be here. You know, there's so many great verses in it. It's kind of they put on coffee cups. People get tattooed, you know, the scriptures from Philippians like this. So don't leave here today and say, hey, God, the preacher said get a tattoo. You know, I'm saying if you're going to get a tattoo, though, that, that's a good one right there. And uh, oh, God, look, here's a guy, uh, Tim Tebow, got it on his face there. So, but anyway, so what the book talks about is what your next step in following Christ would look like. What, is, what does a Christian look like? And so uh, really it's something that could spiritually supercharge your life. So today what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the introduction. We're going to take a deep dive uh, we're going to zoom into some verses here, and uh, we're going to read the Bible, going to explain the Bible, we're going to apply the Bible. Philippians chapter 1, if you could stand to your feet, we're going to read 1, verse 1 through verse 6. I will begin reading, and then if you could take the second passage, and I'll take the last. This is the word of the Lord. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the church leaders and deacons. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time that you first heard it until now. And I'm certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. You may be seated. Father, thank you that the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. And Father, I pray for everyone here, for our guests, for those here for the first time, they would feel welcomed. Lord, I pray that as we open the scriptures and unpack and proclaim your word, that uh, you would add your blessing to the reading and application and explanation of your word in our lives. I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scripture to our hearts. That you help us understand the things that, that we hear and help us to to apprehend that for which we've been apprehended. May you open our eyes and give uh, our ears uh, the ability to hear what you have said. May you open your word and may it come alive to us and lead us and guide us. May we hear the voice of God through the word of God. We pray that you would do this and you would do more. And everyone agreed saying? Amen. And so, who's the book written to and why was it written and what's the backstory? of the book here. Well, we have three main points in the book. One is, what is your new identity? Secondly, what is the new community that God has called you to be a part of? And number three, 
What is your security that you have? Your identity, community, and security. And so we're going to talk about that. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves or servants of Christ Jesus. This letter, this small four-chapter letter here, just a few pages, an easy read, 15, 20 minutes here, you can read it. It says the letter is from Paul and Timothy in the opening greeting, a brief introduction there, introducing Paul, the apostle, the author, as well as Timothy, the esteemed co-worker, the confidant, the one that Paul was mentoring and coaching there. And so it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, but I have no one like-minded like Timothy. I have no one there whose heart beats like my heart beats, who the blood that flows through my veins is flowing through his veins. And as I read this and I, and I was pondering and processing and wanting God to speak with me, uh, the word, the question came to me like, well, who is your Paul? And who is your Timothy? And I want to ask you that this morning, like, who is your Paul? Who is the person that's mentoring you? coaching you, speaking into your life, pouring into you, and who are you pouring into? Who is like your Timothy? Who is the one that you are mentoring, that you are investing in there? And so, uh, and who is Timothy without a Paul? I mean, Timothy became Timothy because Paul's influence in his life. So I would just like to challenge you to think about this dynamic, think about this relationship in your own life, and how are you pursuing those relationships of pouring into someone else, or having an older uh, Christ follower pour into you? In my experience in my life, I've had to be very deliberate about that. I've had to ask them, pursue them, go out of my way to chase them down so that they, would in, they could invest in me. And so, uh, he says here, he says, secondly, he says, servants or slaves or bond slaves, doulos of Jesus Christ. So I don't think anyone they're going to leave here today, go out to lunch in the restaurant, say, hey, my name is Rod, and I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ, you know. But how cool is it that that's how they can introduce themselves? Of all the things that they could say, they introduce themselves as the servants or slaves or bond slaves, depending on your translation. Paul is saying this, he's saying literally, uh, I want Christ to own me, and I want him to do with me what he desires. That's the perspective of a mature Christ follower. So it wasn't like, well, I'm adding Jesus onto my already busy life. Like he's just an add-on to it all. No, Christ who is my life. See, Jesus was his life. Jesus was central to his life not peripheral, not a Sunday gig, his life here. And so for me to live is Christ because knowing Christ changes everything. So some translations read Paul and Timothy, bond slaves of Christ Jesus. And so what that literally means there is that they are servants for life. They are freely and willingly choosing to follow Christ. God, Christ, as their master there with a lifelong devotion to him. See, a servant in that culture, a, a doulos or a bond slave here, was one that reached a point where they had an option. They had an option to stay or not to stay. 
In Exodus chapter 21, it speaks of this and how if they wanted to stay, they chose to stay. When they could be free, then they became a bond slave and they would have their ear pierced, which would tell everybody that I choose to stay with my servant, my master, even though I could be free. It's saying that I am yours and my lifelong devotion is to you. And that's what Paul is painting here when he says in the introduction, I'm a servant of Christ. Next, who is he writing to and who's receiving the letter? Well, the Apostle Paul then is articulating, dictating this letter to a community of Christ followers there in Philippi. Just like it is now being spoken to us, a community of Christ followers here in Calamasa. And so it is timeless, and therefore it is timely. And so Paul's writing a letter, the central theme of joy, you, if you know much about the book, it's a gentle, central theme of joy. So I mentioned something like 17 times in four chapters there. And it might surprise you where this is coming from here, because when you're writing a letter on joy, you would think that it'd be full, like of maybe like he's, he's writing from some swanky coffee shop, the sweet aroma of coffee there, and he's sipping at his latte and having a nice conversation and writing the book there. Or you would think that the Apostle Paul is maybe up in the mountains at a beautiful mountain retreat and drinking in the majestic view of all the mountains there. Or maybe he's at the beach and looking at the ocean and the waves crashing on the shore and, and enjoying all of that. But that's not where Paul is when he puts this letter together for the people of Philippi. Paul is in prison and he's facing his future execution. And it's under that background, under that, the weight of that, that Paul writes the letter. And think of this. So the most popular work uh, about joy, any, any work of literature in all of history, is written from a guy who's in prison and is going to ultimately be executed. And he's writing this, and he's facing very dire circumstances, physical deprivation. They don't feed you. They don't clothe you there in that culture when you're in prison. So he's facing physical deprivation, emotional deprivation, social deprivation. He can't, he can't talk to the people that he used to talk to. Uh, he's being attacked by others, and Paul has a big ways to put him on a shelf there. So this is really a hard time for him. So what can we learn from the man who is in prison? Well, for one thing, we learn that God is at work, even in the middle of your arduous, tumultuous, difficult, hard circumstances. We learn from the man in prison that God is present with us in every situation and circumstance of life. We learn from the man in prison that joy is something so much deeper than the American concept of happiness. Joy is something much deeper than your surroundings, or your circumstances. It is beyond all of that. And so let me tell you the background to the letter here so we can get the best understanding of the letter. To do that, we have to go back to Acts chapter 16. I'm gonna unpack that for us, which gives us a detailed account of how the church at Philippi started. So the church in the book of Philippi uh, was written, Paul writing back to them after about 10 years after the story, which I'm going to unpack to you. So Paul in Acts there, he's a scary dude. I mean, he's like a terrorist. Like, he wants to murder. He's breathing fire. He's like the terrorist toward Christ followers. And when he's on a road called Damascus, he bumps into God Almighty, knocks him off his horse, 
Paul has an encounter with God, and so he says, what must I do to serve you? Becomes a Christ follower, and from there he starts telling people about Jesus. So he ends up telling uh, some different cities that he went to, and one of them was Philippi. So now to understand the background, we want to talk about the people that were in Philippi. It was very insightful for us. So in Acts chapter 16, there's a, a section there about the people that become Christ followers. I just want to take a moment and unpack that for you. So you have, a, you have a woman, you have a slave, and you have a prison guard. So the woman named Lydia, whose house was in Philippi, she is fashionista, CEO, very important woman, very wealthy, very successful. Uh, she's a professional business entrepreneur, executive type there, kind of high-end business, purple cloth that she's selling. She's the type that drinks fine wine, flies first class when she's visiting her homes today on the different uh, east and west coast. She's an intellect. She's a seeker, a woman watch who had everything, but something is missing in her life. So Paul then enters Lydia's framework, and Paul then begins to explain and engage and reason with her and her intellect, and she becomes a follower of Christ. She finds new life. When she heard the message of Jesus, she believed in him, and scholars believe that the church met in her house. Imagine all these people hanging out in her you know, stunning uh, home there. So that's where the church been. It wasn't a bad gig for Paul because he probably got to stay there too. So you have Lydia, loaded Lydia, amazing Lydia. And then you go on the other end of the spectrum uh, from a completely different walk of life. And you have this, this woman here who's absolute contrast. And she is a slave. She's a fortune teller. And she's possessed by a demon. So she's going around harassing Paul, screaming, being disruptive, being a pain. And so she's out of control. And Paul's thinking, like, I think you've got crazy woman issues. And so he doesn't invite her to a Bible study. He doesn't apply to her reason or anything like that. He finally just turns around and commands what was in her, the demon, to come out of her. And she becomes aware of the, aware of the way of Christ and how different and there's uh, kind of, it's unexplainable other than the power of God there, and she becomes a Christ follower. So you've got Lydia, CEO, Fortune 500, businesswoman. Now you've got the slave, the demon-possessed fortune teller, and they're worshiping God together in Philippi. And then you have Paul getting hot water. The authorities complain, uh, they complain to the authorities, the owner of the slave, get Paul arrested, and he ends up in jail. And that's how this letter happened. And then in prison, you got Paul and Silas. The Bible says they're worshiping God. There's a, an earthquake that happens. The Roman guard goes crazy. He wants to kill himself. They're like, no, don't do that. I mean, he's a Roman guard, you know. Like, I mean, the guy's like ripped. He's like buffed out. Kind of like the speaker this morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so you got Lydia... CEO, fashionista, demon-possessed, fortune teller, delivered of all that, worshiping. And then, you, you know, Lydia drinking her fine wine. Then you got the guy watching the game, drinking beers, the, 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 soul, the Roman guard. So you have this eclectic group here. And so Paul knew all their stories. But Jesus had given them real life. So Paul preached the good news to the, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire strikes back. He's in jail. I'm saying, like, I love these people. I love these people so much. So 
With that background, continue in Philippians 1, verse 1. It says, to all the saints, what saints? The saints we just talked about, Lydia, the slave, uh, the Roman soldier there, the, the, the guard. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So a deacon, a diaconos, one who serves, literally means through the dirt, serving in some capacity, a doer. And so you see the church here, it's a real church, has structure, including, including watch, the leaders, uh, some translations, bishops, elders, and deacons. Okay, so, so you have structure, you have organization, all of that. Paul now watch in verse 1, drawing a circle around the community in Philippi there that has a common devotion and faith in Jesus Christ. And they're bound together serving in different capacities as servants of Christ. And then he says this, watch, watch. To all the saints. Can we say that, saints together, one, two, three? One more time with a little more gusto. One, two, three. So saints here, the biblical definition of a saint is one who then is a believer, follower of the way, one who's personally received Christ. The original language is hagios, which means one who's separated. Translates holy also. Watch, watch. It says to all the saints. Saints normally, historically, is an exclusive little group. You got to be dead. You got to have had a miracle happen through your life, then another miracle and all that. And then you're canonized. And we get hung up on that. But see, a saint is someone who is living, not dead, and inclusive, all the saints, not exclusive of just a few little saints like the church would do, so by definition of this, you're all saints. Amen. Tap the person, or just look at them and say, you're a saint. Just, I want you to do this. Tell them, tell them they're a saint. Now, you know what? That felt uncomfortable. Felt uncomfortable because you're like, dang, that's like a serious paradigm shift for me that I'm a saint. But that's the reality there. That's the reality that you are a saint. So watch, number one, you have a new identity. All Christ followers have a new identity. Why is this so important? Because you live out of your own identity, and your identity is a saint, one who has been separated unto God. Think about that. How, how that would change your life if you lived uh, in that identity. You move from like a, a Lydia who was an ain't, and the slave girl who was an ain't, and the guard who was an ain't, to a saint. That's what happens. So you look at what Paul was referring to here at the Philippian church, and they all went from saints to saints there. And so Lydia, who was what, chasing stuff and chasing her dreams and never satisfied her, and then Jesus chased her down, and she went from being an ain't to a saint, and then the slave girl, who's absolutely in bondage and possessed and all that, and used and abused by her slave owners, now she's no longer in darkness. Imagine people that would see her then in the past, and then see her when she's been delivered, and like, hey, that, that, that was the ain't, but man, she's different. She's like, she's like separated into God, a saint. The prison guard, who's all about his identity is bound up in who he is, a Roman guard, guards the prisoners. No longer is it 
wrapped up in just what he does, but who he is as a saint of Christ there. So, and again, I get it. Big paradigm shift here. And you're like, man, I got to live like an otherworldly life. No, you just got to be you. And recognize this is your identity because as a man, as a woman thinks in their heart, so are they. So you don't do anything to earn the identity. Paul says, if you believe in Christ, you are a saint because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done. You are a brand new person. The old things passed away. All things become new. You are a saint. So Christ has completely changed me, completely changed you, given you a new story. So what a wonderful word there. And so Paul writes, they're legitimate saints here. And then he says, the saints in Christ Jesus. Well, what is that all about? Well, in this community, the commonality is Christ. Nothing else is really common for them that we're aware of. But in Christ there, they have this common bond here. They're fused together. They're bound together. They're set apart. They're buried with him in his death and raised to walk in newness of life here. So and they're, made, they're separated, made holy by what Christ has done in them. Where do they live? In Philippi, a prestigious place, a commercial center of the ancient world. So they got the new identity. They are God's people here. They belong to Christ. They've been set apart. And then he goes on in verse 2. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Christ, uh, the anointed one, his title, Jesus, his name there. And so the Bible teaches God is Father, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They're both on the same plane here, both God, both divine. And the source of grace and peace is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk about this for a moment because it's very important. No one else can bestow this upon you. You really want to have peace? There is no peace outside of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to have grace, experience grace? It is only through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a personal one-on-one relationship with Christ. You can think of grace as this, wo- this way. It's like a code word. It's a code word for all that God has done for us in Christ. Where Jesus came, Jesus died on a cross, Jesus is resurrected. Everything that he has done then is squeezed down and compressed to a single word, grace. God's sovereign, divine influence upon a human heart, a God-ordained acceptability, unmerited favor. God has singled you out and made you the object of his affection and generosity and and favor there. That's God's grace. And you have grace and peace, keros and shalom, always coupled together, always grace ahead of peace. Peace follows grace because you never know the peace of God if it's not for the grace of God. Unless you're right with God, you experience who he is because of his grace, then God bestows upon you peace. So peace then, another code word, a result of grace. Think of all the benefits that happen because of God's peace, where you have no guilt anymore, where you have no shame, you have no fear. Forget not all the benefits of grace there. Uh, You're at peace with God. And so press down into a single word all that God does for you, peace there from one-on-one encounter with Christ. Now we go to verse 3. 
Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Imagine that. Is there anybody you can think of that 100% of the time you think of them, you give thanks? Can you think of anyone? uh, Maybe your husband or your spouse, but you don't have to tell them right now. Okay. Every time I think of you, I give thanks. Quite a statement, really, for someone. But actually, there's something here that we can build into our lives. When you think of someone... Why let it stop there? Why not continue to pray for them? Paul says, I'm giving thanks. I pray for them. So I've I've been trying to build this into my life for for a long time. When they come, people come to me and I think of them, I just offer up a quick prayer. Lord, bless them. Lord, help them. Or maybe something that I know about, about them. So Paul has this massive, huge inventory of great memories. And the very thought of the Philippian church, just his heart begins to overflow with thanks there. Now, no one's perfect. We're human. All churches fall short. Philippians are not perfect here, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty rocking church. And so Paul's heart then, it's flooded, like overflowing wave after wave of, of gratitude there, thanking God for them, the wonderful people there in Philippi that were faithful, that helped him, Epaphroditus, that, that, that were so generous to him. And so he's got them in his mind in his heart. I want you to see that. He's in a job. They're in his heart, okay? So it's a great practice to build into your life. So out of, watch, out of his prayer flows an awareness, a mindset, out of a conversation with God of thanking God for them and praying for them. Verse 4. Like he's smiling now. He's got a deep-seated gladness. Verse 4. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. I mean, his heart's filled with delight. I mean, this is not like the church at Corinth. Like, they're a bunch of knuckleheads, a bunch of mess-ups, they're jacked up, and Paul and Paul be like, man, I, I got a lot of stuff we got to talk about. It wasn't like the church at Galatians, like, man, who has who is messed you guys up? Even the church at Ephesus, you know, they had issues too. And so, but nothing like that. Not one word in the book of Philippi that Paul has to correct him about anything. They're unique. This is an amazing church. This is why we need to really lean into what, what uh, Paul has to say to us. So his deepest longings and hardest for them. Then he says, verse 5, And you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard about it until now. You've been my partners, or you've been my koinonia. You've been my community, my fellowship, my partnership. And he's saying, like, look, hey, you people, you're so different from one another. Yeah, Lydia, fashionista, so different from demon-possessed fortune teller, so, de- so different from the Roman guard there. You're so different, but yet you have this koinonia among you, this community, this partnership, this fellowship, and that's a picture of the church. I mean, I'll tell you what, Lydia doesn't eat at the same places. Uh, uh, she doesn't walk with the same crowd, crowds, but yet they have community in the gospel, so the one thing they have in common that binds them together like we do, the church at, at Calamesa, is Christ binds us together. So not only do you have a new identity, but number two here, you have a new community, a new koinonia. And so Paul's grateful for them. It's not a man-made organization. It's not some club. It transcends human organization there. Uh, and it's forever community. And so... Uh, He's simply saying, I'm so thankful for you. I can't even express how grateful I am for you. 
for your participation in the gospel. So, man, I'm just preoccupied with you. I can't get my mind off you. I might be isolated here in prison. I might be detached. I might be separated. I might be miles away from you, but you are my partners. You, you, you're you're my, my, my team. You're, you're my partners. And how are they partners? Financially. They supported him. They sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to, to help him while he's in prison. He didn't have food. He didn't have clothes. They, they support him. So here is what they're doing. And so... And all of that to say this, look at church, we got to anchor ourselves in this example and what the church was like and the spirit and the DNA of the church here. This is the model, this is exhibit A of what we want to be, a community, not a bunch of people that just show up in a building and leave. That's, that's, not, a, that's not even a church. That's just a bunch of people in a building. The church is designed to, uh, conceived in the mind of Almighty God that we would be a, a community, a connected community here. So you want to anchor yourselves in the example of what happened here and ask yourself, am I a part of the community? That's why we push so much about things like rooted in the, uh, in the relationships and, 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 uh, and work uh, small group experience that we're doing, or the women's groups, or the men's groups, because we want you to be in community. That's why we designed the whole church, that you are, you are driven into community. So we don't have Wednesday night, so you can't do this again, because we want you in community. We don't have Sunday night, because we don't want you to be in a, in a large group again. We drive people outside of Sunday morning. We drive everything into community, because that's what the church is here. We are a koinonia. And so how beautiful that it, is, that it is here. And so now we're going to look at verse 6. Paul's going to drop a bomb. He is dropping a major bomb on them. Watch this, verse 6. Everybody read again here, look it. And I'm certain, I'm confident that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns here. So it says, look, this profound powerful passage here. One of the great promises in all of the Bible here says that when God starts it, if God's the author, it is a good work. What God has begun in you is good. And so that should just shape your, your self-esteem and your, your image there. When you get the reality of this in your heart, it's not you that began the good work. It's God. It was God's idea. It originated with him. And God is passionate about bringing it to fruition here. And so... Uh, so it's God working in you constantly as long as you have breath. God is committed to you. He's given you a firm foundation upon which we stand. He keeps his promises toward you. And so not only do you have a new identity, not only do you have a new community, you've got a new security right here. Okay, can anybody in the house thank God see, uh, that he's not finished with you yet? I'll begin with the speaker. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that he's not finished with me yet. And so we should all be grateful for that. It literally can be translated, he will evermore be putting the finishing details on you. Forevermore. As long as you have breath. God working out the details here. I am certain. I'm confident. Deeply persuaded. 
strongly convinced. I have, I said, I have an unwavering assurance. So, so look, friends, we can be confident. Yeah, I really believe that uh, many of us here this morning, you need to, you need to really uh, lean into this and believe it because it changes your disposition and your perspective, and it gives you a, a greater sense, of, a, a level of confidence here, because it's God. It's not you here, and you can be discouraged uh, looking at your life and how things are going, and, and you can't always see it, but when you meet Jesus and have a relationship with him, he wants to give you a level of confidence that you can face your future watch, go back, okay, that I am certain, I am certain, unwavering confidence here, strongly convinced. And so Paul doesn't say, hey, I, I, I hope it works out for you, Church of Philippi. No, he says, I am certain, unwavering confidence that it is going to work out. I am absolutely convinced and fully persuaded that God is able, that God can do That God. She is God-dependent. And so uh, that's where, where our confidence lies, that he that is God the Father who's begun the good work in you. God started it. God is a great initiator. God drew you. God convicted you. God opened your heart. God granted to you, gifted you, saving faith there. And it is God that, it, that is working every moment of every day. So you can be confident. Uh, uh, you can have confidence in God that he's holding on to us, that he's for us and not against us, that he's the originator of the good work, that your spiritual starting point is all about God, okay? Uh, so when we were lost in darkness, okay, uh, when we were lost in our transgressions and sin, but God had mercy upon us. And so the greatest work God does is your salvation, making you a new creation in Christ, making us new creatures in Christ Jesus. When we were dead, not like kind of struggling. No, when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. And so God then began the good work. He saved you if you're a Christ follower, right? Salvation is from the Lord. So Paul says, I'm absolutely persuaded of this very thing. The God that has saved you began the work. The God took the initiation there. God made the first move. God doesn't make the move. There's no more moves to be made. God pursued us and began the good work of salvation. See, there's none that seeks after God. No, not one. See, if God didn't make the first move, there's no, move, no more moves to be made. His will, his work, he initiated, he originated, he saved, he redeemed. God then taking personal responsibility to then continue and to complete the work, he will not rest until the good work then is finished. So watch it say here, he will continue his work. I'm telling you, if you, you, you grasp the reality of that, that changes you. Because it's telling you that God is not yet done with you. God's working inside of you. God's at work in you and he won't stop as long as you're on earth. Now watch this. You come to church and you can kind of you know, got your hair looking good, and you, you know, kind of look like you, you know, you got it together a little bit. But the reality can be, even though no matter how you look on the outside, you can be jacked up on the inside. You can be so messed up on the inside, you don't want anybody to know how, how jacked up you are. And so, though, though people can't see it, 
So he's still working, doing an inside job there. Like the song says, even though I can't see it, you're working. Even though I can't feel it, you're working. You're always working. And so there's God changing you, transforming you, fixing you, healing you, uh, just doing a work within you, shaping you, making you, molding you, refining you. God is at work here. All the trials, all the trauma, purposeful there. God is working until ultimately he is finished, until he's finally finished. So God completes what he starts. Maybe he looks at you and says, hey, you know, they need a, they need a little more they need a little more perseverance. They're a little, little too soft. Out there in Calamese, they're a little too soft. And he teaches you to keep on kicking after you take a licking. How many people know what I'm talking about? Okay, he's working within you. You don't like that. James chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Okay, trials work patience, but let patience have its complete work that you might be complete and entire, not lacking anything. But it's all it's from the trials. That's how you learn perseverance, by having to persevere. So you take a licking and so you can keep on kicking. And so until it's finally finished. So God then, the point is, he's, he's completing you. And so now, we all play a part in God's work in us. It's all God, but you play a part. Now I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. What stands in the way of God completing, finishing his great work in you. What stands in the way? It's all God, but it's up to you to cooperate. You got to cooperate with God, his work in you. You got to submit, yield, lean in, hear God's voice, do what he says, obey, trust. Follow the light of his word. Say yes to his nudging, prompting, and bring no requirements. Fine print with your yes. You see, Christ wants to finish it, but you have to submit to the master worker. See, and God did not start on you the journey to stop. He wants to keep going. And you can say that God is working in me, and I'm not all that God wants me to be. That's my story before you. I know God's working, but I, but I also know I'm not, I'm not all I'm supposed to be by any means whatsoever. I have like massive work to do. And so, but he will bring it to completion. And I want to rest in that. And that changes everything. That gives you great confidence. And so the church, he writes to Philippi, new identity, new community, new security. I pray that him who has begun a good work in you today will complete it, and you will yield to what God wants to do in your life. And what does that look like? God makes something real to you that you need to be, that you need to do, and you just you lean into that. You, you just keep leaning, and he makes something else new, and you lean into that. And so God speaks to you, makes something real from his word, uh, quickens it to your mind, and you, you just keep, keep following, leaning in, obeying, trusting, trusting the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, he directs your path, and he will transform you. So there it is, friends.